This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. We have as our guest today, Harry Nelson, who is the author of two books and another on the way. The books I'm going to talk about are going to be the, and I'm going to let Harry say, I'm here, John. I'm glad to be here. Are you there, Harry? I'm here, John. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me on today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, lots of books. I, um, I'm going to start with the, uh, the, the 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 book that probably is the most recent book, and that's the book entitled "The United States of Opioids: A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain." And that's that's uh, that's quite a telling title, I can tell you that, just from my reading it. Um, the second book that you wrote, uh, or the wrote first, I should say, is that. Uh, from Obamacare to Trump care, why should you care? I like that part there, Harry. You know, I, I was a poet and didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, but why you my, should care, right? But my feet were Longfellows. <laughs> um, I, I, it says here you're a founding partner of a law firm, um, how much time do you have left to practice law after all of these uh, books and so forth taking up your time? You know, it comes and goes in waves throughout. I've been practicing now n not quite 30 years. And uh, I definitely, I went through a period where I sort of put law, I wouldn't say putting it on the back burner, but I would, would probably be too strong, but I probably reduced the time I was practicing to about half time in order to do a lot of writing and speaking and going around the country, trying to trying to see if I could make a difference on America's overdose crisis and opioid crisis. And um, uh, I'm back. I would say the pandemic really brought me back full cycle to, uh, to working. I, you know, the being shut down and not, not able to travel all over the place and give speeches turned out to be a good thing for me in terms of getting me re-energized and refocused on enjoying the actual practice of law but I'm still trying to squeeze in writing where I can. Well, that's good. That's good. Um, being a healthcare lawyer, I don't think it existed uh, 15 years ago. Is that right? Was there something you know, fixed that then? It's funny. I graduated law school in, uh, in December 1992, and 1992 was the year that the American Healthcare Lawyers Association was actually founded. So nobody, before 1992, no one thought of healthcare lawyers as a category officially uh if you use that that the the organizational date and and personally i i'll be honest i didn't even begin to think of myself as a healthcare lawyer until about 2002 i i the, at the beginning of my career i actually thought of myself as a university college and university regulatory lawyer and and that was my entry point into this work i was working for a bunch of uh midwest uh, colleges and universities that, and and many of them had medical centers and I was being asked to do all these, these healthcare issues, but I, I, it took a long time for me to actually realize that that was going to be the, the focus of my, uh, of my career. Yeah. 
it uh, it seems to evolve and then evolve again and evolve again. Uh, oh yeah, these these days, people. By the way, it's very interesting. There's calling yourself a healthcare lawyer is like kind of a little bit old fashioned. Now everybody, you know, you have health data security lawyers, you have uh, uh, you have lawyers in every little niche, and 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 to actually call yourself a healthcare lawyer is sort of to like it kind of signals that you're in a little old school uh, where everything got more and more specialized. Mm-hmm. Your your newest book, your most recent book, um, entitled "The Overdose America: How the Pandemic Transformed." Oh, that's the new one coming out. Yeah, that's that's that title is still tentative. We're 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 aiming for a uh, a publication date in early 2022, um, and uh, I have I have a co-author I'm working with on that book. Um, mm-hmm. And we have uh, we're 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 gearing up for to really take the message of that book around the country in the spring of 2022, um, and it's really focused on how communities around America can tackle the post-pandemic overdose crisis, which is just raging, and and the mental health crisis. And uh, I'm I'm excited about it. It's it's still still a work in progress, but 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 excited to be able to share it. Well, you should. You should be excited, and uh, it's something I think that a lot of people are going to buy, and they're going to read that book. Um, the uh, the selling of the op- opioids, of course, was was news. Um, that's the one that I grabbed in uh, in uh, trying to get to, get to the other one. It's the bestseller. It's called uh, the United States of Opioids. A prescription for liberating a nation in pain, and um, we've we've seen it, and we still see it. I, I thought that at one point it was going to go away, but I guess I'm naive. Well, there there was a moment when you're not you're not wrong. There was a moment when uh, you know the the government uh, in in early in 2018 was celebrating the fact that the total prescription death. Prescription drug uh, overdose deaths went down slightly, uh, and so the overall total number actually fell. Right, we're we're on a we're actually on a 50-year uh, year-over-year increase in total all overdose deaths from all drugs, and 20 over 21 years now of year-over-year uh, overdose deaths from opioids. But but the one year where it actually went down just a little was 2018, and uh, the, the, there's a bigger story there about the the shift from prescription drugs to illegal fentanyl uh, being distributed all over America on our streets and on mm-hmm. uh, through, through, through our smartphone uh, apl- applications. And so, but there was a brief moment when people were, that were celebrating a victory. It was, uh, there's no way you can do that anymore in 2021. Right. Right. Um, so I am naive then. I, I, I thought that this was, this was all going to be over with when the, uh, was there a settlement in terms of the big lawsuit? Uh, yeah, we're still we, trying to work that. They're still they're still playing out. There's there were thousands, tens of thousands of lawsuits, but there was a very big settlement with the Sackler family, who uh, were the you know the, the owners of Purdue for four and a half billion a couple of months ago. There was a twenty six billion dollar settlement by Johnson and Johnson and all the big uh, drug distributors in America, Cardinal Health, Keston, Amerisource, Bergen. So we've we've seen uh, we've seen already over uh, you know thirty. Uh, approaching $40 billion of settlements and, and more are still coming uh, week by week, month by month. And so, uh, so that is part of the story. 
The problem is that uh, the settlements are, are not are producing a drop in the bucket of what it's actually going to take to actually really address this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I read where you're the perfect guy to be an ex- expert witness. Were you called for this case, particular case? I was. I was an expert witness for, um, uh, for you know, for, uh, for the plaintiffs in this case. I actually am somebody who sort of made a little bit of a switch. I, I, I got involved in this issue representing healthcare companies and even being consulted by pharmaceuticals. And I, over as I expressed my opinions about uh, about the pharmaceuticals and about the broader nature of the problem, um, I got contacted by many of the, by 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 a bunch of the lead uh, plaintiff lawyers in the opioid litigation, and mm-hmm. I was uh, I was used as a as an expert witness in in, in several cases. Well, there's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a past expert witness myself, and there's no way in the world that they, they could have done that without bringing you in as an expert witness. You know, it's a complicated story, and it's, it's hard to wrap your head around, and I do find, I find it, um, I, I personally, I do a, a fair amount of expert work on, on healthcare issues, and I find it is valuable. It, it's just our, our system is so complicated, and the history, and the details uh, make it hard to get people really to the heart of what's going on. So I, I, I really, I feel good about serving as an expert and, 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 and I think it's, it's, it's definitely something that you need to understand uh, what's really happening in a lot of, a lot of, a lot of situations, including in this crisis. Yes. Yes. Very, very much so. Very much so. Now it also says here that, um, you are with your healthcare and life sciences. You're including groundbreaking work related to behavioral health, telehealth, cannabis, and psychedelic ventures. Um, and I'm old enough to know that there is interest in cannabis and psychedelic ventures. Uh, I come from uh, a long time ago. Um, how have you been dealing with that uh, in terms of, or your viewpoint on cannabis and other sure. psychedelic ventures? You know, I, I, first of all, I, I'm uh, I, my my earliest uh, exposure to the legal issues was when I was out of the law school in uh, in 1993, 94. I worked for a federal judge in Hawaii, and I, it was the middle of uh, the Clinton administration's very aggressive crackdown. I, uh, I, and I watched, uh, you know, seizures of people's homes and um, assets because they were involved in cannabis. And and um, and, I, and and then as what happened was I, I started doing the work I do now, and I, I got very involved early on in doing a lot of DEA compliance. And when I came to California in the early 2000s, I was contacted by many doctors who were then getting in trouble with the DEA for recommending cannabis. California law had changed. California was the first state to allow doctors to recommend cannabis to their patients. And so state law permitted it, but federal law continued to make it illegal. And so I was defending doctors before the DEA, before the state medical board, and giving advice of how they could navigate these tricky waters. And I ended up uh, being the first, you know, when the, when the, in 2009, when the Obama administration was the first uh, uh, administration to say that it was going to stop interfering in California's decriminalization effort, I was, my phone started ringing off the hook because I was known for representing doctors. And so I started getting, uh, I got inundated with people wanting to know how to, how to, how to use uh, uh, cannabis medical, uh, for medical purposes 
with and how to how to how to grow it, how to develop products. And I, I became the first regulatory lawyer in the state to really start giving that uh, advice. My, my 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 lawyer colleagues all thought I was crazy. A couple of them offered to defend me if I got uh, prosecuted. But but it started for me a, a a real belief that we need to do more to open up clinical research and to extend access. It's not like all drugs uh, uh, and all substances. Cannabis has, you know, positive aspects and negative aspects. There's a major risk of addiction that, that's not an abuse, but it, it has clear therapeutic value, as, does, as do psychedelics. So, so today we're seeing the beginning of a repeating pattern of what happened with cannabis. Uh, we're seeing, you know, the truth is the psychedelic practice is already dramatically expanding because of the legal, one legal psychedelic that we have, ketamine, being used to treat treatment-resistant depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. But we're beginning to see a wave of psilocybin decriminalization. Uh, that the Oregon was the first state, but there are about a dozen cities across America that have decriminalized. And we're going to see over the next 10 years uh, decriminalization of psilocybin and other psychedelics go across America. And it's going to be the same thing again, a drug that has enormous therapeutic potential, particularly for people with mental health issues with depression, with PTSD, but also uh, a, a tricky issue of avoiding uh, uh, abuse and avoiding uh, it, it causing harm to people. Well, it, it certainly can, unless it's uh, dealt with for the, for the purpose of, uh, of helping people, helping people overcome what's dragging them down. Um, yeah. In looking at the uh, psychedelic ventures, do you do you recollect or know a, a name called Ram Das? Of course, yeah. No, I, I'm a, you know, I was born in in '68, so I'm 53 years old. So I, he, 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 I was, I was just a kid when, but I, I still do, I, I, I and I've, I'm fascinated by, uh, by that whole period. So I, I, I know Ram Das. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I pretty much have listened to all his stuff which was quite interesting i'll tell you that and and others were involved uh, they were they were living in hawaii i believe yeah there was um, you know by the way my, my 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 being in hawaii definitely played a role in connecting me with a lot of people who uh who really are are true believers and, and but i have to say i have seen firsthand uh the therapeutic benefits um and i think i think that it's a shame that you know these are it's a, it's a these are it's a tricky issue because they're these are definitely dangerous drugs and we shouldn't forget yes. that but at the same at the same time uh, my belief is that we have such an enormous crisis uh, of an epidemic level in all of in, in mental health that we need more answers and you know the existing therapeutics that are out there the serotonin uh, uh, uptake reinhibitors the like Prozac and Zoloft those work for some people but they are not for everybody and we need, we need more solutions and we should not allow, uh, we shouldn't allow our fear to keep us from, from enabling the research to, to develop better solutions for more people. Well said, well said. Where does uh, LSD fit in all of this? It's on the list. LSD is going to have my prediction within, uh, I, I don't want to say, I'm hesitant to say 10 years, but over the next, I would say 10 to 20 years, we are going to see LSD decriminalized at a minimum in many, many states. I think there will be significant controls to make sure it doesn't become just a party drug, but 
I, we are going to see LSD used, and I think it's going to show. I think we're going to see that it's going to be very effective. Um, I've, I have some clients who have been early pioneers in, in research, and uh, the results are promising. You know, the, the, the key with these things is they need to be used in a supervised way so that people don't hurt themselves. Uh, and they get uh, immediate attention if they're having a, uh, a you know bad health effects uh, while while they're taking a psychedelic like LSD. But but we're going to we're we're absolutely going to see legalized or decriminalized LSD in in in, in the near future. Right. Well, it uh, I would have to assume that the that it's 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 pointing at or, or taking aim at the psychological aspect of, of what's in in between both ears um that's that's the territory i think that that's going to be coming up uh with well, that that that's where I, I honestly to me uh um where a lot of this points is that we we have been afraid uh to really take on the mental health crisis that that is all around us and um and I think that uh, so much of this is about mental wellness and uh, and and how we get there, how we how we help people, you know, find it, sustain it, protect their kids from uh, uh, from 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 going down a path that's going to lead uh, to, um, to 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 harm. And uh, it's all mental health is is going to be the driver. I I I really think that we are we're living in a time when the awareness is about how how pervasive so many of these mental health challenges are um, and hopefully where shame is diminishing, because I do think the big challenge that we have is that so many people are living in, in a, with a sense of shame about whatever mental health challenge they're having and they are not getting help for it, whether it is anxiety, depression, uh, post-traumatic stress, whether it is rage. Uh, uh, there's just so much, uh, uh, so much pain out there uh, that is driven by mental health. And, and that people are not getting help for, um, and are 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 all uh, too embarrassed to ask for help with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> I do know that Timothy Leary is still dead. <laughs> right. These, uh, you know, if only all these uh, these 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 uh, pioneers of the of the '60s, right, are uh, the electric Kool Aid acid test uh, will all if they if they if they only could have seen. The future, they would have, uh, they would have had a good laugh. I, I, I assume they're looking down on us and uh, and enjoying the fact <laughs> that uh, that this is having its day. Of course, of course. Um, a couple of years ago, the VA um, diagnosed me as having PTSD, and um, I've been working with that. Um, and it's it's all I can see. It, it, I don't. It's counseling primarily. Um, I don't know of any um, anything on the uh, healthcare line of medication. I know nothing about that. They haven't proposed any of that. Uh, I consider myself with a mild uh, bit of that. Um, there's another su- something here that I should get to people will be of interest to um, tell, tell us, tell my audience about Brittany Spears. I, you know, I get asked uh, frequently by media to talk about uh, issues coming up in healthcare. And, and, and there was when before the Brittany Spears case, nobody knew the general public did not know what a conservatorship was. And the story 
of uh, of this young woman who's uh, uh, on one level is like an international uh, celebrity, you know, incredible uh, world famous musician, and on another level is operating within a structure where she doesn't get to make her own healthcare decisions, she doesn't get to make any personal decisions, and her life is controlled by uh, by her father and and by uh, by others. Um, really caught people's attention, and so mm-hmm. I I've been I've been interested in this uh, topic because it it really goes to a, a, a level on which people do not understand fully the, the, the challenges of, of uh, mental health challenges and the way that disability rights play in. Um, and I think a lot of, uh, and so, you know, this is really a story that's still unfolding, but what we already know is that Britney Spears is a young woman who suffered from mental health challenges. She, uh, she I believe it's been reported that she, she suffered from bipolar disorder, um, like millions of Americans. And uh, she, she, there was a period, you know, 13 years ago where she was in the hospital twice with it. Uh, and her father, um, you know, used that moment when she clearly did need some help to establish a, a conservatorship. The problem is that her father then proceeded to make millions of dollars controlling her estate and controlling, not just controlling her estate, but controlling her every movement, seeing every email, text, literally putting uh, uh, recording devices in her bedroom so that he mm. could know every little detail of what was going on with her life. And we don't, this is obviously a very unusual case of a very wealthy family that, uh, um, that, and, and somebody who was world famous to attract attention. But what it calls attention to is, is yet another way in which our system is broken. And, 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 and that, that is that with regard to protecting people with disabilities and uh, their rights, giving them uh, a voice to make decisions about their own health care, our system has a lot of work to do, and unfortunately, there's a there's a way in which uh, you know, basically anything we, that happens in the law becomes sort of self-preserving, right? So once once it's very easy to start things and then very hard to end them, and mm-hmm. and what we see here is that this this situation went on way too long. Thirteen years later, Brittany was really thriving in her life, and yet she's still under these terrible abusive controls. Um, and 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 it, I think it raised really it raises really interesting questions about how far we go to manage allow people to be put under uh, controls. You know, her father controlled her. He was able to prevent her from uh, her, uh, having a child, which she wanted to do. He was able to force her to stay on lithium so that she would tour on contract. And I I think we're going to see significant changes. Certainly, a, a lot of attention and hopefully legal changes to do more to protect people with disabilities and to ensure that we are getting real scrutiny of whether people are being allowed to live their lives. And that includes people with, with, with disabilities. You know, you made reference to your own experience with PTSD. And, and I, I talked when I go around the country and I was speaking about my book, I talked personally about my own experience with anxiety. The reality is that most of us live with some level of mental health challenge. And, 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 and many people are able to just develop effective coping mechanisms whether that means spending time with friends or meditating or, you know, exercise. Uh, some people need professional intervention. Some people do need, there is a place in our system for people to be hospitalized in some circumstances, but we need to create a system that first of all recognizes that these are dynamic states in our lives and that people need to have the freedom to manage their health uh, and to come back and, and not to be stuck in a, in a prison uh, simply because they uh, they have a condition, and and I think the more the more that we make our system function in a way that takes away the the shame, because a lot of this Britney 
Brittany didn't speak up for, for years and years because she was so embarrassed about this. Uh, the right. more that we, the more that we create a system where people can say, Hey, I'm going through a rough time uh, and, and get, whether it's get support of the people around them, get, whether it's get medical and mental health professional attention, uh, the better off we will be. And so I, I think Britney Spears is, is, is in some ways, she might, you might say she's an accidental hero because uh, so much of this was driven by, by other mm-hmm. people telling her story. But I, I do mm-hmm. think that there is something noble about her being so public. And I think that a lot of good is going to come out of her sharing her story. I didn't really know or realize the extent that she had been involved with her her father making all the decisions. It's almost like uh, some sort of parental incarceration. Um, that's which... exactly that. Truthfully, that's exactly what it is. And by the way, there are I I, I see in my work um, many many situations where this is appropriate, right? Where people have are really in a severe state of distress. Sometimes you have people who are just unable to manage their own affairs and conservatorships allow those people to be protected from harming themselves or harming others. But the problem is, in this case, it lasted, it probably needed, it probably, it might have been appropriate to have a conservatorship for a year, you know, but it was not appropriate to have a conservatorship for 13 years. And it's amazing that that happened. It is. And it was. Well, one thing in, in my observation, uh, with the things that you've done with your books and, and with the, uh, um, the, I'm sh- sure you enjoyed the writing of those books, and your third book is coming up. You say the title will, it will be changed, possibly. It says uh, Overdose America. Is... Right, right now, it, it, it was originally it was originally we were originally calling it After the Virus. It's now the tentative title is uh, Overdose America. Um, tackling uh, America's post-pandemic uh, mental health and overdose crisis. So um, it's still, 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 it hasn't been finalized, but that's overdose America seems to be the, the, right. the current favorite. Well, a guy like me, after talking with you and, and what you've informed me of, is you're sitting in a pretty good spot. You've you've got the catbird seat. Sometimes, you know, it's a funny thing. I, I, I feel I write, I've been writing the books because I do feel I'm in a privileged position and I, and I, uh, I, I, I but it's a strange thing. I, I, it's not a, it doesn't, it's not a happy moment when I get called on, on a crisis as I tend to get at least once a week, I get a call, somebody died. What do we do? You know, I, I, I get brought into uh, um, a lot of, I, I get brought into a lot of, of situations and it, for me, it created a real sense of responsibility and a real sense of mission. Um, and, uh, you know, the danger of my work as a lawyer is you have kind of a catbird seat to a front row view of, of a lot of very interesting problems and people pay you to help address those problems. But if all that I do is, uh, you know, is, 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 is work with people, build them for the time that I spend and, and, and go home to my family, then I don't feel like I have made a, an impact. And I felt on these issues, there was a burning there is a burning problem in our society, and, and I don't feel I can, I can rest until I've done what I can do to call attention to it, to try to change the conversation, and to try to move the needle on, on, on solving it. Harry, please tell my audience, all the listeners out there, how to get in touch with you, with your books, where to find your books. Sure. My, the, the easiest place to find my book is on uh, Amazon. It's on all the, the large uh, book sites, Barnes & Noble, uh, 
it's it's available through my website harrynelson.com uh, there's a link to the book and um yeah i i i would uh i, I appreciate people um uh spreading the word and 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 checking it out it, it's really the the point of my book was to be very solution focused and to try to change the conversation uh from one of blame to one of how do we solve this crisis well i um Really appreciate your being my uh, guest today, and um, I want to thank you for that. And I'm, I know my listeners have enjoyed this. It's a lot of information uh, flew flew by us here in thirty minutes. Um, it's a uh, no. It's been a sincere pleasure, and I I, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to share ideas, and uh, and and uh, appreciate people for for taking the time to think about these challenges and, how, and what we do about them. Well, thank you. Thank you, Harry. And I want to thank my listeners for tuning in to Searching for Integrity. So long and happy trails to all. <laughs>